please. Uh, be seated. If you've got a Bible uh, on uh, your laps or underneath your chair, do pick it up and turn to page, I think, 600. Page 600. Well, met you. My name's uh, Zach. And uh, we started uh, last week uh, looking at Isaiah uh, 40. And the first 11 verses where God comforts his people in exile, says their sins are forgiven, says that he himself is coming. And of course, we saw that promise is fulfilled in Christ. And we turn now to what he says uh, next to his people uh, who are in exile. Starting from verse 12. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, and what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman and to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely as they plant, uh, are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and a tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Well, let's pray together. Spirit of uh, Christ, we pray, come to us uh, this morning and take uh, these uh, words we've just read and implant them in our hearts so they uh, change us uh, from the inside out. We pray. Amen. Amen. 
Well, you can tell uh, when something has impacted uh, someone, can't you? And their, their lifestyle changes, they become uh, vegan or they become a, a fitness uh, freak. Um, they make great sacrifices, perhaps, of time uh, to a particular cause or money to a, to a charity. Uh, or they talk enthusiastically um, about their, their passion uh, whenever you see them. Uh, you can tell when something has had a big impact on someone. And the question I want to ask this morning is what will cause the gospel, uh, the gospel we, we saw in verses 1 to 11, what will cause it to impact us? Uh, not merely as an, as an add-on, um, but, but deeply. And so it turns our lives upside down. Because if we're honest, it, it doesn't always, does it? Uh, sometimes um, sin appears more attractive than Christ. Oh, we know that. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't, we wouldn't sin. Uh, sometimes we, we're tempted to depend more on other things than God, our wealth, our status, our career, our home. Sometimes we lack a strong desire to speak to others about God or the gospel. Uh, and particularly in the context of Isaiah, we'd rather go to other places uh, to find comfort and peace. The gospel doesn't always impact us. I want to suggest to you this morning that the impact of the gospel um, depends largely on our view of God, on how great he is, on how weighty he is on our hearts. And our biggest problem, or one of our biggest problems, and for all of us this morning, including myself, is that my view of God is too small. My view of God is too small. I live in a society where, where God is a small thing. He's nice to have, if that's what you're into. But it's a bit silly. And make sure you keep him to yourself. And we're surrounded by churches. And even we can see this in ourselves from time to time. And the way we speak about him and the way we treat him makes him well, weightless and not weighty. And a weightless God will not impact us. So what is your view of God? Because that affects, that affects everything else. It matters to the exiles that Isaiah the prophet is writing to. It matters to us uh, for the message of the gospel uh, to, 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 take, to take a hold in our lives, not just to convict us, uh, but to bring us uh, the good things in the gospel, uh, the comfort it offers, the, the peace it offers. Uh, we need to lift up our eyes as Isaiah tells us to in verse 26, we need to behold our God as he commands in verse 9. To look at our God. And when we do, uh, we find that God declares to us, verses 12 to 17, and our first thing this morning, that God declares to us, I am greater. I am greater. Uh, whatever you compare me to, I am greater. Whatever measure you use for me, that is insufficient. I am greater. Whatever picture, as you sit there, that you have of God in your mind, the way you think of him, God says, I am greater. In our passage in verse 12, he begins with the universe. Isaiah tells us to, to consider his work in verse 12. Now, the universe is, is a vast place, isn't it? It's complex. It hurts our minds to think about 
Uh, you may have seen that photo, the, the, the pale blue dot taken by a space probe out of Voyager 1 as it, as, it, as it goes to the outer reaches of our solar system and, and turns around and takes a photo of Earth. And it's called the pale blue, blue dot because in the photo, there's a beam of sunlight. And you look really closely, there's, there's a tiny dot, dot like, like a dust moat in it. And that's us. And we're tiny in our solar system. And our solar system is, is tiny in the world we live in. But God, well, it's his work. It's what he's done. Verse 12, he's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Have you ever gone down to a local a lake or pond and scooped up water in your hand? You'll notice that it's totally insignificant. I mean, you haven't changed the level of water in the lake. It just runs out again. But, but God, he holds all the waters, the lakes, the rivers, the seas, the oceans, in the palm of his hand. He's marked off the heavens of a span. A span is the distance between um, your little finger and your thumb. And God can hold up his hand and it stretches from one end to the universe to the other. When I hold up my, my thumb and finger at night, uh, perhaps I'll, I'll cover a few hundred galaxies. Uh, but that's just an illusion, isn't it? Uh, for God, it's reality. And the span of his hand, he measures the dust of the earth. Uh, he pours it uh, into a measure. Uh, all the deserts, all the beaches, all the dust storms. Just check how much there is. The great mountains he weighs in scales. The mountains that we struggle to climb and are proud when we do. When we get to the top, he can lift up and measure and weigh them. He fine-tunes the universe and it is flawless. And the question is for us, who else? Who has done this? Who else? And, and no one gets close. Uh, the pictures uh, before us are almost incomprehensible, aren't they? And God says, consider my work. The universe around me, I am greater. I am greater. And then verse 13 to 14, consider his wisdom. Consider his wisdom. Uh, who has understood what God has done? I, who has marked off, that's that word measured in verse 13, who has, who has fathomed the wisdom of God? Who can say to God, he talked to me when he did this, he consulted me? Who has taught him, who has taught him, who has showed him? What help did God need from us? And of course, the answer again is no one. As a human race, we, we tend to think that we're, we're wise, don't we? We tend to think that, that, particularly in the age we live in, we live in an age of understanding and knowledge. But God, well, he created the world by the power of his spirit and he needed not us. He needed nothing from us. The whole universe and every part, every detail uh, was his idea. He imagined the sun. He came up with it on his own and it was glory and splendor. And then he caused the plants down here on earth to spring up and to soak in the power of the sun. He, he mapped out the process of photosynthesis to produce food for us, to sustain all life on this planet. And the best we can do of all our, our wisdom is just scratch the surface of his. All our understanding and knowledge is ultimately just thinking his thoughts after him and, and that in a very poor way. Consider his wisdom Verse 15 to 17, consider the world. We think humanity is a big deal, don't we? Uh, we've done impressive things. 
Actually, largely, as human beings, our view of the world begins with ourselves. Everything else, we're at the pinnacle, and everything else is, is below us. And that's often actually why God appears small to us, because we appear big. I was in London this week, and I stepped off the train and looked up, and above me, I've been to London, there great, huge skyscrapers, and one in particular, as I looked at it, it just kind of made me feel, feel, feel dizzy and queasy. It was terrifying. I can't imagine constructing one of those, but, but we did it. Mankind did. We've been to the moon and back. We built supercomputers the size of fingernails. And we've harnessed the power of wind and waves and sun. But before God, before God, wow, just a drop from a bucket. Never carried a bucket along. Children ever filled up uh, buckets and you carry it along and, and you spill just a tiny, tiny little amount and a drop goes down the side. Doesn't matter. Well, no, not, not really. You're not going to go back and, and fill up the back bucket again. And that's what humanity is like before God. Just dust on, on scales. If you take out your kitchen scales and put them on your sides and you haven't used them for a long time, right, you notice there's, there's, there's a film of dust on the surface. Doesn't matter. Well, it's not going to change the, the, the weights that you measure. You might blur it off just for sake of cleanness, but it doesn't matter. Verse 17, all the nations, if, if you combine USA and Russia and the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire and pile it all together, what does God say? They're nothing before him. He accounts them as less than nothing and emptiness. We're saying not, not in value. God values humanity. He's given us his image. We have great dignity, but in status, in, in power, in strength, God says, you are nothing before me. I am so much greater than you can possibly imagine. Verse 16 is, is a picture of uh, uh, worship before God. In the Old Testament, they used to offer worship to God um, by offering sacrifices, burnt offerings. Uh, and Isaiah imagines, if you, if you took all the trees in Lebanon, Lebanon was a great forest full of these mighty cedar trees and broke them down and created a huge bonfire and then turned Lebanon upside down uh, and rattled out all the animals and beasts and then sacrificed them to God on this massive bonfire, would that be enough? No, it's not sufficient, he says. It doesn't match up uh, to his greatness. You can't do something, you can't offer him worship that accurately reflects how great he is. You can't impress him or help him or manipulate him. Again and again and again throughout these five verses, Isaiah is piling up picture upon picture for us. Image upon image, God is greater than you can get your mind around. He is incomparable to anything you could compare him to. So then in verse 18 to 20, God says to us, I am greater, so don't shrink me. I am greater, so don't shrink me. He says, to whom then will you liken God? What likeness compares with him? A likeness, kind of image. What, what, what looks like him? An idol? What a Jake. What a Jake. 
Um, idols might look impressive. That, that's what idol, as I was going on to say. They're skillfully crafted. They're covered in gold or silver if you're too poor with valuable words. Uh, but ultimately, that's all they are. They kind of look impressive, but they, they can't do anything. You have an idol that, that will not move, he says at the end. Um, they're just a solid piece of uselessness compared to God. I want to pause here and just ask, no, 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 why, why do people create idols? Uh, why do people in Israel's time create idols? Why do, why do people around the world create idols uh, today? And there's lots of, lots of things you could say, uh, but at least one of them is the impulse of the, the human heart uh, to, to shrink God so that he's comfortable, so that, so that I understand him, so I can control him, so, so I reduce him down to my categories, so that he serves my desires, to, to have God as, as I want him to be, not like this, uh, but like that. Have, have a God who, who approves of my desires. He says yes to what I want and is as harsh on the things that I don't like. A God that suits me. And we do it all the time. We do it subconsciously, probably mostly. And the world does it all the time. It's amazing, isn't it? How many people are coming out saying, God really approves of this that no one has ever said in the history of the human race before. I just know that this is what God wants for me. I shrink him down to make him comfortable. And the tragic thing about that is, is we rob ourselves. We rob ourselves. To shrink him down is to rob ourselves. If you notice in, the, in verses 18 to 20, um, there's a desperation in it, isn't there? Of the people making the idols to make them glorious. So even the poor, poor person in verse 20 um, goes and tries to find the best he can, the best he can afford, uh, valuable wood, wood that, that will not rot. He still seeks out someone to, to craft it skillfully. He doesn't, if you like, make an idol out of children's Play-Doh and then bow down and, and worship that. We rob ourselves because we are made to worship something glorious. That's why they make idols that are glorious. Deep down, we are actually made to be lost in wonder and praise before something greater than ourselves. Israel and exile have been tempted to, to, to worship and, and praise the things they saw around them, the great Babylonian empire and all its might and glory, or the Babylonian gods. Because they are made to worship something glorious. It's why as a culture, as a, as a human race, we become obsessed with things, we become obsessed with celebrities or epic stories, we become huge fans of Lord of the Rings and the Marvel Universe, or, or we obsess over objects of extreme value, pictures and jewellery and so forth. We're made to obsess over something glorious. And God says, here I am, can't you see me? Look around the world. I'm greater than all those things. They're just pale reflections. And of course, it makes the gospel immeasurably glorious if we're looking up and seeing how glorious God is. This God, in verses 12 to 17, without the gospel would be immeasurably terrifying, wouldn't he? You ever thought that? If I came before him, it'd be crushing. How small am I? How insignificant? How sinful? How utterly unworthy? But the gospel is this. It's behold 
your gods. Behold your God. Behold our God, that in Christ, clothed in his righteousness and forgiveness. We can approach this God. That trembling and joyful, we can worship him. He has shone the light of his glory into our hearts in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if God is this great, then the gospel becomes precious beyond belief. But Isaiah isn't uh, finished with us. He goes on. When we, when we look around the world, uh, around us, or we tend to believe that, that God is small and weak, aren't we? That would be temptation, the temptation for, for Israel. A conquered and exiled to a, a pagan nation. The whole world laughing at Yahweh. The God that couldn't defend his people. The idea that Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, that was stronger than the Babylonian gods would be preposterous. We look around ourselves today and, and the church just doesn't seem very powerful. It's dwindling here in England. People who we once knew who profess Christ now seem far from him. And increasingly as Christians, we're no longer just tolerated, uh, but, but mocked. Now, even reviled to be a Christian is increasingly in our day and age, in our culture, is an increasingly an evil thing, says the world. So the doubts creep in, don't they? Have I made the right choice? Am I trusting the right person? And just as God says, I am great, in verses 12 to 17, he says to us, I am more powerful. Verses 21 to 24, I am more powerful and whatever picture of God and all his might and strength that you have, God says, I am more powerful. Whatever you're worried about or anxious about, God says, I am more powerful. Whatever threatens you or makes you fearful, God says, I am more powerful. Isaiah says, quiet. Verse 21, quiet. Do you not know? Do you not, do you not hear? Have you not read it in your Bibles from when you were a child? Have you not seen it in the history of the world displayed to you? There is one who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers below him. I used to have a globe in my desk. In a sense, I, I sat above it when I sat at my desk. I could spin it with my finger. But Isaiah says, there's one for whom that is literally true. And we are like grasshoppers, insects, ants before him. And there's one, he says, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. And we have our little dwellings, don't we? Our little homes, our little lives. And maybe if we're Goliath grasshoppers, we have our little kingdoms and we rule our little worlds. But God, well, his dwelling uh, is the cosmos he pitches the heavens as his tent. That is where he lives, seated above the earth. And his point, or his point comes down in verse 23 and 24, I am more powerful than anything or anyone that stands against you. The rulers and the princes in verse 23 are those who have power over others to direct their lives and make decisions for them, to influence and shape the world we live in, they are the Putins and the Bidens whose armies can kill and crush and liberate. They are the Elon Musks who can buy and manipulate whatever they like. They are the celebrities who can shape and sway a whole generation 
with their opinions. They're the people who have power over us, before whom you and me are helpless in ourselves. But God, what does he say? He says he brings them to nothing, to emptiness. Just as he said, he brings the, the nations before him empty, but he, he brings princes and rulers to nothing. Notice that, that's an active thing. Not, he's not a passive God. Uh, he's not a sleeping God. He's an active God. Verse 24, he says, do you want to know that's true? Just look at the history of the world. Look at the history of the world. The history of the world, you could put it very simply, couldn't you? It's the rise and fall of superpowers and nation, nations. Israel rose in power and then fell, Babylon, and then Persia, and then the Romans. And I've probably missed a few. My history's not that great. But it's the rise and fall of superpowers. And no superpowers ever lasted. And they all desperately want to, don't they? So that, that, that should be obvious. No superpower gets to power and thinks, okay, I've had enough. Time for someone else to take over. But they all fail. The LGBT movement might look strong in our day and age. This is a June month, Pride month, a month dedicated to them. But if it is against God, it will not last. Why? Because God is active. He pictures in verse 24 a little plant and says, that is like the superpowers of your day. It's like a, a plant that has been dug out. If you've ever been in your garden, you dig out a little hole and you put the seed in and you cover it over Oh, with soil, it's tiny, it's insignificant, and it kind of starts to sprout, and it's tender and small. And God just breathes on it. No sooner has it come up out of the ground, God breathes on it. And he blows it away. He blows it to stubble. They seem strong to us, and they are strong compared to us. But not before God. They are weak and feeble. I am more powerful, he says, than you can possibly imagine. So don't be afraid. So don't be afraid. Verse 25, who can compare to me? Who can you bring before God and say, look, he's as powerful as you are? Who can compare to me? He says, the Holy One. I am unique in my holiness. I'm in a category of my own. Lift up your eyes. Look up on high. Is he telling us to look at? Telling us, telling us to look at, look at the stars. Look at the stars. That is how strong I am. I bring them out. I know them individually. They exist and appear as they are because of the abundance of my might. Because I am strong, literally strong in strength. I wonder if that, that picture doesn't often strike us. Uh, because by and large, we, we live in cities and our eyes are downwards looking at the man-made things around us. And we live in cities where there's lots of pollution and so the, the stars often obscure to us and we don't look at them very often. We're not often in a place where they, they come out clearly to us. And actually, there's a similar way which I think we can treat God in a similar way. You know, we're consumed in our thoughts uh, with the stuff around us with man-made things. And so we don't learn to appreciate him and who he is. And Isaiah is saying, look up, look up. Look at the stars and see what they reveal about God and fill your heart, day by day, Christian, fill your heart on the greatness and the power and the strength of your God. And you won't be afraid of tiny man. 
He may seem big to you, and he is compared to you, but God says he is little and less than nothing next to me. We live our eyes are lifted up, aware of the presence of God, day by day, hour by hour. Do you do that? Spend time dwelling on the greatness of God, filling your heart with his strength and power, looking at the world around you, looking at the stars and the galaxies, looking at the plants and the animals, and seeing how great he is. He says to us, there's one thing that his strength is invested in. He brings the princes and the rulers of this earth to nothing. There's one kingdom, and there's one king to whom he lends all his power. Of course, that king is the Lord Jesus, and that kingdom is his church, which means it's to us. He gives his strength, which means it's to you. He is your God. He is our God. He is the one who has come to us to shepherd us, to gather us in, and to care for us. We are in his hands, and he is an immeasurably great God. Let me pray. Father, we long, we long for the gospel to take a deeper roots in our lives. We long for it to impact and transform us. We long to hate our sin more. We long to be more comforted by the good news of what you have done for us. And so we pray, fill our eyes with a vision of your greatness. Day by day, hour by hour, we'll be looking and seeing how great you are. And would that bring us both the joy and the peace and the security and the comforts that we so desperately crave. In his name we pray and for your glory. Amen.